chapter 4, James chapter 4, verses 10 through 17 is what I'm going to read to us now. This is dealing with the topic of the sovereign rule of God. The sovereign rule of God. Follow as I read. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Both of these passages are dealing with God's rule or God's sovereignty. One of the most pride-crushing truths in Scripture is the teaching on God being sovereign or him being the ruler of all things, past, present, and future. But let me say this, it's one of also the most comforting doctrines and teachings in all of Scripture. Our country has been themed as one nation under God. This should be something that we hang on to as a country, though it's been threatened as of late. If you've followed it sort of in the news or different, you know, blog sites or things, people are raising awareness to the fact that the idea of one nation under God is something that the secular humanist of our society and in our country are trying to erase and trying to take away from us. Our country was established under the founding fathers and our constitution as a country that is aware of God's protection, of his rule, of his kingship. And it's just something that people are becoming more and more blasé about or wanting to defy because that kind of moral accountability isn't something that people believe we need. I was watching on a YouTube site yesterday uh, just a, a flashback of the beginning of the U.S. Open. And it's a golf tournament that is in Washington, D.C. or was this last year. And at the beginning, it showed little sound bites of Children pledging the American flag. And guess what part was spliced out? One nation under God. You think that was intentional? It actually happened twice in two different versions with that. Also, the U.S. $1 coin has had some attention as of late where the one nation under God is phrase is being pushed to the periphery of the coin sublimated around the edge, you know, and that's to give more prominence to the picture on the front, right? I don't know. I don't know. One nation under God. There was a judge in Sacramento who ruled against 
the idea of enforcing that children say one nation under God when they pledge the flag, saying that it's a violation of our constitutional rights, our First Amendment, separation of church and state, and so that's a violation, so children don't have to feel obligated to say that anymore. It really represents how our country is moving from being a country based on the supernatural God to naturalism, where we say, look, we're just really confined to ourselves, our own wills, and our own scientific uh, understandings, and what we think life is all about. We don't want anything to do with a supernatural God, and so our culture is moving away from that. Now, listen, I'm concerned about that as an American citizen, but let me tell you this, I'm more concerned for the church and that the church doesn't buy into this kind of mindset where it's all about us, instead of first looking at who God is and how he has revealed himself in Holy Scripture as sovereign God, as our King, and as our Lord. I was watching another YouTube, and it was of a preacher in Charlotte, North Carolina. I won't mention his name. He has many thousands of people who come to hear him preach, and he was you know, very much ranting on a Sunday morning about how people come into church and they, they think about the sovereignty of God and they just, they, they get lost in doctrine and they don't do anything. And so he was sort of poo-pooing and going against doctrine saying, look, people just come in and they get fat on the word of God and sit there with their pot bellies as they want to hear truth about doctrines of sovereign grace and God being sovereign and ruler. I just thought, Wow. That is the wrong tack to take because we need to first start with God and how big he is before we think about doing anything. And the bigness of God is what gives us the confidence and comfort to do anything for God at all because he's doing it through us as we minister. We're not just one nation under God. We're one church under the living headship and lordship of God. I mean, the gospel itself is predicated on Christ's lordship. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Only a sovereign Lord can do that. Only a sovereign Lord can empower the gospel so that people can be wrested from their sins. So we're sacrificing something when we sacrifice God's lordship or his sovereignty. A few verses. Ephesians 1.11. All things happen after the counsel of his will. This is the God we serve. Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good for them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Psalm 103.19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his Kingdom rules over all. That word kingdom in the New American Standard Version is sovereignty. God's sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Do you realize that? That this is our God. Our God is so sovereign that he is involved in leadership decisions at the highest level of all the nations of all the ages. Is your God that big? Because that's the God of Scripture. If he's involved at that level with the president 
and the kings and the rulers and the monarchs, then he's involved even in your very life. It's difficult for us to understand this. I think in our democratic republican society and our our judicial, executive, and legislative branches of government as they work together in a system of checks and balances. I'm thankful for our nation's government. I'm thankful for the work that's done on all levels, both state and nationally. But it's different. It's a different government system when you think in terms of God, because God is a sovereign ruler who does not seek counsel as he makes decisions and as he adjudicates his will. He knows the end from the beginning. Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is God and he is Lord. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue, both in heaven and earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is what? Lord not part of a government. He's Lord over it all. Creation, he's Lord over his church, he's Lord over the heavens, and he's Lord over hell. He is the Lord. And that's what the scripture teaches us. And only when you have that frame of reference for God will you see change in your life, both in terms of comfort and in terms of conviction, and both in terms of stopping sin and both in terms of spiritual growth. That kind of God is the God that we need. Let me ask you, what's gained when you believe in the sovereignty of God? What is gained for you? There are many things that are gained. First of all, you have a king who is not subservient to anything. He is what he, what he declared himself to be to Moses in the burning bush, he says, look, you're saying that, Moses, you stutter and that you're afraid to go confront Pharaoh, but tell Pharaoh that I am sent you, the self-existent one, Yahweh sent you. That's the sovereign Lord that we obey. That's what you gain when you believe in God and his rule. And you get something. You get security about your life. And you get peace about your life. And you get comfort about your life. How does this work? Well, have you ever asked yourself, how did I end up here? Or how did I end up married to that person? Or how did I end up with that child or these children? You know, I made this decision or that decision. And this turned out in my life or that. Or this, this child is estranged from me. Or this has happened or that. When you understand that God is ruling over all of these decisions then you realize that even though by your own free will you were making decisions, in retrospect you understand that God was ruling over your life all along the way. Is that comforting to you? This is a pride-crushing truth, but it is an incredibly comforting truth. I've heard one person put it this way. It's like if you have a tapestry and you flip it over and you see all the yarn and threads and and things and needlework that's poking up through, all of that needlework and and sort of a random looking string, multicolored string, represents all the decisions and different actions and activities and circumstances that have happened in our life. And it really doesn't make sense until you turn it over. And it's like one day in eternity, God will turn over the tapestry of your life and then you see a beautiful picture of how God wove together all of the rights and all of the wrongs and all the circumstances and all the situations in your life to create something that was above and beyond all you could have asked for or thought about in your life. Is your God that big? 
Is your vision of God the God of Scripture? What's lost when you don't believe in the sovereignty of God? Your life becomes temporal and contained in this world when you lose the sovereignty of God. You live for temporal goals. It's all up to you. Life's pressure is on your shoulders and you've got to produce and you've got to fulfill temporal goals to find satisfaction and contentment in your life. All the things that have happened to you where you've been victimized and the injustices, they don't make sense to you and you've got no explanation but just to lay it upon yourself and say, I've screwed my life up. That's what you lose with a no-sovereignty perspective. Theologians, and I'll just bring this up because they're teaching our preachers in some schools, will teach nowadays something called openness theology. And that's to try to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's what Rabbi Kushner tried to answer, where he says, look, we can't blame God for catastrophic events. He had nothing to do with hurricanes, tornadoes, or circumstances, or abuse issues in the home. God couldn't be superintending those things. He, he must have nothing to do with that. And so openness theology is a teaching that says God only knows all of the millions and billions and trillions of possibilities that could be found in the future. But he doesn't pick any one of them and he's not leading towards any end. He doesn't really definitely know the future. He only knows all the potential future outcomes. That's openness theology. But you know what that is? That's shrinking God's glory and saying God really is subservient to those possibilities. He's serving those possibilities because he's not ruling over the future anymore. He's a a servant to circumstances. Circumstances determine the future. God doesn't with openness theology. It's a hopeless way to live. But what James is doing here In James chapter 4 is he's testing the church to see if they have truly grasped and submitted to God's sovereign rule. And he's doing it in two areas. He's bringing up, in the verses we're going to look at this morning, he's bringing up the people that the church is interacting with, people in the church's lives. And then secondly, he's going to bring up in verses 13 through 17, issues dealing with our finances and money. Are these real pressure points or not? Do you not struggle with people that are in your world, in your sphere of influence? Is that not something that you need to trust God for? That's what James is bringing up. And then secondly, in weeks to come, we're going to talk about how James is saying we need to also trust God with our finances. These are very practical issues to wrestle with, especially under the theme of God's sovereign rule for our lives. We're going to understand how God actually puts people in our lives under his sovereign plan. If you look at verse 10, remember we've been talking about repentance and how the church needed to repent of sins and how they were talking bad about each other and stirring up conflict with fights and quarrels. And then he wraps it all up in verse 10 and says, humble yourselves before the Lord. In other words, come under God's sovereign lordship. That's what repentance looks like. Stop sinning by yielding to God. 
And then he wants to test the church to see if they've really yielded by bringing up people. People that are influencing our lives. And then he's going to bring up our money and our checkbooks. Just to really meddle and get into the weeds of our lives. People and money. What we're looking at is two tough questions on the sovereignty of God. Look at the first question there on the screen. Does God have the right to rule over the people in your life? Answers that question beginning in verse 11. With a command, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Stop there. Here's the command. The rest of verse, verses 11 and 12 are, are there to answer why we shouldn't speak evil against people. It's a command and then reasons to obey it. And the reasons will mount one upon the other, all bringing us back to the sovereignty of God. First of all, the command, do not, it's an imperative, don't speak evil. That literally means don't talk people down. Don't talk people down. There's a preposition on the front of that word, speaking, and it's to talk somebody down. James could be referencing the Ten Commandments about not spreading or bearing false witness or lying about people, not maligning people. Or perhaps it's broader than that, just don't gossip about people. Not only don't make things up about people, but don't bring things up about people in a negative way. It's talking people down. He wants to stop the infighting that was going on in the church. Look at verse 1 again. And he's saying specifically, back down to verse 11, don't talk about people. Don't malign them. Don't talk them down. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? I remember being in a men's choir. Imagine that of all things. I'm in a men's choir at a different church. And as one of those awkward icebreakers, the worship pastor says, hey, men, you know, we're kind of in a closed room. Let's just share for a while. It's about 40 of us. One after the other, I want you to stand up and tell me the least favorite thing about your job. Tell that to the rest of the group. What's the least favorite thing about your job? And so one after one, men would stand up and they all said the same thing. You know, it really is that the people I work with, I mean, that, that, that's it. You know, when it came to me, because I was on staff there at the church, that was an awkward moment. But anyway, we, we do struggle with the people that are in the sphere of our universe, right, that, that we're interacting with. And we have to be on guard against talking people down. James is talking to the church. He says, brothers, he says, don't do this. Don't go against one another Brothers, he's being very pastoral and he's trying to get them to open up about this. There, there can be a secular humanism that can come into the church where we're trying to figure everything out instead of trusting the Lord, who's the Lord over the hearts of all the people around us, right? God is the one who's qualified to judge and look into the motives of people's hearts. And James is saying, look, don't take that burden upon yourself. Well, here's reason number one. Reason number one for why we shouldn't do this, why we should obey this command is that when we speak down about people or speak evil about people, we are putting ourselves above people. We're putting ourselves above people. Look down again. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil. Stop there. It's not that we're not supposed to be examining people around us. It's not that we shouldn't exercise discernment about people. 
One of the most loving things we can do is to confront people in love, speaking the truth in love with Scripture, where Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. We're supposed to restore people. Matthew 18 says that we're supposed to confront erring brothers and sisters. But as a general rule, we are commanded not to speak evil about people. And let me tell you this. It is so utterly freeing to get this. Because when you take God's burden upon your shoulders, you begin to get crushed underneath of it. But when you leave the judgment to God and you just live your life with people, you're free. Now, are we supposed to be proactive with people? Yes. Are we supposed to engage in relationships with people? Yes. Are we supposed to sometimes give corrective criticism to people? Yes. Are we supposed to discern error that people might speak and correct that? Yes. Are we supposed to? You're supposed to even discern the things that I say from the pulpit. Yes. We're, we're supposed to be discerning people. Are we supposed to judge people by their fruits? Matthew chapter 7. Absolutely. But this is the warning. The warning is not to judge a person's motives, to leave that to God. When you begin to leave the judging of motives to God as a general rule, as a general rule when you are charitable towards people, remember Matthew, or 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When that's your heart towards people, how free are you then? I mean, we have to be careful. We have to not be influenced by people's evil, so we have to discern that. Bad company corrupts good morals. But at the same time, when you're just letting people live their lives and you're just living for Christ and concerned more about your relationship with God and in general being charitable towards people, you are free. And you're not under the guilt of that burden where you feel like you've gone too far when you've talked about somebody when you shouldn't have. That's what James is talking about here. He says, this is what real humility looks like when you believe God is sovereign over your life. Secondly, not only are we putting ourselves above people, but secondly, we're putting ourselves above the law. Look at this in verse 11 again. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Stop there. James is saying, look, I'm going to up the ante here. It's not just that you've put yourself above people by sitting on the judgment seat over them. Secondly, you're putting yourself above God's holy law. There's a reason that black words are frozen on a white page. Because as we're living in our lives, and our lives are anything but static, we need some buoys. We need some guardrails and some guidelines that can bring us back. Now, the law here is the law of liberty, as James 1 mentions. It's James referencing the Old Testament law in Leviticus, and he's bringing it forward saying, listen, because Jesus died on the cross and he transformed your life and he gave you a heart that wants to love, now you can apply this principle out of love for Christ. That's how it's working here. That's what he means by the law. He's referencing Leviticus 19, 15 through 18. You could turn back there. It's interesting. I think Leviticus really influenced James's uh, teaching and his letter here. Because in verse 15, he's talking about how we are not supposed to 
the writer Moses was talking to the children of Israel, how they are not supposed to be partial to the poor or defer to the great, which reminds us a lot of James 2, not showing partiality in the church. And then he says in verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You should not stand up against the soul of your neighbor. He says, I am the Lord. Look at this, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but here's the great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That reference to God being Lord is God's sovereignty. Moses here was saying, listen, the reason that you don't slander people, judge people, tear people down, or have preferential treatment over people is because God is the Lord. And it's the same principle here in James 4. God's sovereignty ruling over all. Being, look at this at the end of verse 11, being a doer of the word of God. If you're ignoring the law and forgetting the law of God, then you're no longer a doer of the word of God. It's, it's, it's being postmodern in the church. It's the idea that, look, postmodern Christianity is where people say, let's just be feelings-oriented. Just feel your way through obedience. If it doesn't feel right, then don't do it. If it feels right, then jump in and do that. That's postmodernism. That's relativism. We don't care about the scripture. And what they do is they say that the scripture is just mysterious when it gets that deep. So you just let those verses go. That's what's crept into the church. It's like flying a plane with no instruments. You might feel like you're fine, but you're flying along and perhaps going to head headlong into a mountain. I asked a person who just came back from deployment if I could share this story. Generically, he was over in Afghanistan. He was flying C-17s, and he's been deployed five different times, and it was like the last 10 hours of his mission, and he's up in the air, and there he is, and they're going through the clouds as their crew, and suddenly a mountain is right in front of him. He's thinking, wow, right at the end of my mission. And they were able to do some evasive maneuvering to get around the mountain and miss it by 100 yards, which is a very narrow margin when you consider a C-17 airplane. He said that the navigator in the back was just sitting there frozen, you know. And it was an error on his part not paying attention to the navigation system. This is our navigation system. These are the words that God has given us to steer us in the right direction. Even if it feels right to be doing something, if the word says it's wrong, that needs to curb our emotions. That needs to inform our consciences. And so we come back to the scripture and we don't want to fly blind. We want to fly according to the truth. It's a scripture. We don't want to be postmodern Christians. We want to be not just hearers of the word of God, but doers of the word of God, as James 1 talks about, persevering in that. So easy for us to get caught up thinking, you know, what I'm doing by talking about something is helpful here when really we need to be corrected and challenged by truth, right? That's what the word is there for. So we're not just putting ourselves above people or we're not just in danger of being 
above the law where we will pick and choose what we want to apply. But thirdly, we're actually putting ourselves, when we disobey this command, we are putting ourselves against and above the law giver. When we pick and choose and disregard certain passages, we are not just disregarding scripture. We're not just being a bad Bible student. Guess what? We are flying in the face of the lawgiver. This title, lawgiver, is so interesting because it reminds me of Exodus chapter 19. I think this was in the mind and heart of James when he wrote this, where at Mount Sinai there was thunder and lightning surrounding the top of the mountain where Moses was receiving the law from the lawgiver. And there was a warning there in Exodus 19, 12, that the animals and the people dare not touch God's holy mountain. Hebrews 11, or Hebrews 12 picks up on this, saying that God is a consuming fire. Says you, verse 18 of Hebrews 12, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. This is our God. This is the lawgiver. And we're not just throwing ourselves against the law when we disregard it. We're throwing ourselves against God. We're actually saying, listen, God, you know, we're going to set you on the sideline for a little while, and I'm going to rule. You thought that you were supposed to rule this situation, but I'm going to sit on your throne instead. I'm not going to acknowledge you as sovereign over the relationships in my life. We're going to forget about that. I'm going to take the throne for a little while, and I'm going to judge the hearts of the people around me. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound too far out of the pale of what you might think or do? I don't think so. That's what we're doing. We think that we're able to usurp God's rule when God is the only one qualified to look into the hearts and lives of people and really know the motives for why they do what they do or say what they say. He's the only one. And he's the only one holy enough to be able to hold that standard of that lordship and that rule. And when you give it to God, guess what? You're free. You're free. You're able to live your life in the joy of the Holy Spirit, letting God protect you, and you're not protecting yourself. What kind of God do we serve? Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. So those are some pretty strong Credentials. There's only one God that fits this qualification. It reminds me of Romans chapter 9. I was watching a, um, another preacher this week and he was talking about Romans 9 and how pride crushing that is to think about how we're the clay and he's the potter. And when we begin to answer back to the potter and say, you know, I don't really like the way that you, you know, crafted your story in the Old Testament. I don't really like how in Exodus chapter 32, the priesthood was ordered to slay the rest of the Israelites who were worshiping the golden calf, where God said to the the priest, look, strap on the sword and go run along the different tribes and kill off the husbands and wives and families to create holiness again in your people. I wouldn't have really written that story. I wouldn't have made it play out that way. And that's, that's like a lump of clay on the potter's wheel saying, hey, you other lumps of clay, let's try to figure God out together and pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. And in Romans 9, Paul con- confronts the church and says, who are you to answer back to God? 
It's the same kind of question James is asking at the bottom of verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are we? We're not the judge. We're not credentialed to do that. And so we need to lay it aside and leave judgment to the Lord. Now, go back to where it says in verse 12, he is able to save and to destroy. What does James mean by that? Well, it means that God is in charge of the ultimates. He's in charge of giving life and bringing death. And I think it's, there's a physical sense and a spiritual sense. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses said, See now that I, even I, he's, quoting, he's speaking for God, even I, I am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Jesus takes it at a deeper level, speaking in terms of eternity in Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Is this your God? Because if this is your God that rules on that level, then you believe that he is the judge who can rule even over our tongues and our lips and what we say. And how we think about people. And guess what else? When you believe God is this sovereign, then you can trust your past, your present, and your futures to him. But if you don't, then it gets very difficult to trust a God like this. I was reading in a chapter written by Jerry Bridges. He's written a great book called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. But he wrote an article on God's sovereignty, and I read it this week, and he was talking about Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50, and how Joseph was sold off by his brothers, left, you know, for supposedly being dead to his father, fully grieving his father in that way, but sent off into slavery. And Jerry was talking about how his brothers acted maliciously. They were, they were volitionally, per their free will, acting against their brother Joseph. And then Potiphar's wife, when Joseph was in that household, viciously accused him of sexual immorality against herself. That was her free will. But Jerry says, Jerry Bridges says, God was controlling their actions to accomplish his plan in and through Joseph. It was all under God's command that these things were being allowed to be done. It was all part of God's plan. Just turn back into Genesis real quick. Genesis chapter 45, because there is sort of a crescendo moment in the story that exposes God's sovereignty and how Joseph was able to cope with what had happened to him. Remember in Genesis 45, he was at that point the prince of Egypt. He was the vice president under Pharaoh. He was in command over famine relief as Egypt had had gathered together in storehouses all of the food because Joseph had predicted by his dream that the nation and the lands and the people surrounding would go into destitution and famine. And so Joseph was in charge of the survival of people who would come for food. And part of those people that were coming for food were Joseph's brothers. 
Now, if we were to read some background here, you would see that Joseph had been interacting with his brothers, but his brothers didn't yet know who he was. And he was being, Joseph was being introduced to his youngest new uh, sibling that he'd never met before. And he's, he's sort of crying and, and, and sort of being opened up about seeing his brother for the first time. And he's asking about the life of his father and how his father is doing. And so he's trying to contain himself and hold together all that had happened to him and all that that he had gone through, imprisoned, being abandoned, and how he was brought to this moment. The only way he could piece his life together was by thinking about the sovereignty of God. Look at Genesis 45, 1. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried. He said, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He said, Everybody get out. And then he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then he's talking to his brothers in private and he said, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you see the both and? Do you see how how what they did as evil got flipped on its head so that God could get glory by preserving nations and famine relief? Joseph was able to grasp how God was with him through all of these circumstances. Look at verse 7. He says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph was even seeing how God's people were going to be preserved as a nation of Israel through his sovereign plan. Somehow Joseph was able to flip over the tapestry and see God's plan unfolding for him. Are you able to do that? Are you able to to look at Romans 8.28 and say, God, that was really hard. That was really difficult what I went through. But you were working through all those circumstances to work in my life. This is the prophet Jeremiah later on. In 586 B.C., he was standing in front of the nation of Israel as it's being burned to the ground by the Al-Qaeda of the Old Testament, the Babylonians that had come in. They'd come in to, to burn and loot and destroy God's nation. It would be like burning all of the capitals, beginning with Washington, D.C., and all of the capitals of our great land at one time are disintegrating and being burned to the ground with the promise that most of us were going to go over into bondage under a reprobate people with no hope. And what did Jeremiah say? Well, he wrote Lamentations, I believe. And in Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, in that moment, he spoke these words. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Good and calamity Come. He was like Job saying, listen, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and trust you. That's ultimately all Job could do after all was taken from him. He was only able to say, God, you are God and I am not. Back to the story of Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20. It's crystallized 
well here. It's one of the great verses in the Bible that puts together man's free will, man's responsibility, and God's sovereign rule over over it all. He's talking to his brothers again. He says, verse 19, And Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? Do not fear. And then verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, I want to share a story about my family, and it was something that Judy and I talked about beforehand. She said it was fine for me to share. And I was trying to think, where have I trusted God and had to rely upon him as sovereign in my life? And one example was when Judy and I decided to have a fourth child. We we had three, as you know, and, and I was kind of satisfied with that sort of scenario. And then you know, in the providence of God, Judy uh, and I began to believe that we should have more children and we'd want to do that. And so um, she became pregnant and then miscarried a few weeks into the pregnancy. And that was heartbreaking um, for her and for us. And we went to the hospital um, to deal with that. But what the doctor and the nurses did not fully grasp was how much blood she was losing um, through that experience. And so after she had the surgery, um, she was sitting in the back in the sort of, you know, recovery area, kind of loosely monitored by a nurse. And as the doctor put it to me, he found that Judy was suddenly sinking from blood loss. And Judy told me this just a week and a half ago. We were sitting there talking. She said, I don't really talk about this very much. But in that moment, I felt myself letting go. But I remembered that God had given me children to still mother and parent, and so I hung on. And the doctor, from his perspective, said, I saw her situation, her condition, and I grabbed two bags of plasma and squeezed them into her. And then she came back. But what she said to the doctor was profound to me and stuck with me. She, after all of that, she looked at the doctor and just said, listen, he was saying, I'm really sorry about what happened, about the loss of the child and everything. And Judy said, listen, Job 1:21." Is where Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you have this kind of God, when, when you have this kind of faith where you believe that God is in control of everything that's happened to you, is happening to you, and will happen to you, then you can trust him in that way. And those kinds of faith statements will just come out naturally, almost like you're on autopilot because the Spirit of God is buttressing and bolstering faith in your life as you believe in a God who is Lord over all. Is this your God? It's the most pride-crushing thing in the world to say, Lord, I am under you. But it's one of the most comforting places to live as a Christian, relinquishing your own rights and your own power and your own will and saying, Lord, you are Lord of all and over all and over me. A few application questions. A few weeks we'll get into God being Lord over our finances, but let's just apply this um, as we close. Number one, by the way you talk about other people in your life, would your friends say you regularly trust Christ's lordship? 
And I, I styled that question to try to get to your heart because I, I put in there your friends, people that know you, people that know your heart, that just hear you naturally talk. And it's not, would your friends say that you sin and gossip? I mean, that's one way to say it. But another way to say it is how James is saying it, and that is, by, by the way you talk about other people, do they sense in you that you believe God is in control of the people around you? Because that's where this is won and lost. It's not just saying, okay, I need to stop that. I need to stop that. I need to stop doing that. It's not that. We're not trying to will ourselves wholly. We need to say, no, I need to open myself up to a trust in God where I won't be affected by people like I've been affected by people. So do people sense that you trust Christ's lordship by the way you talk about people? Number two, based on the way you talk about other people in your life, would your friends say you live by the law of love, by the word of God? Would your friends, would the people that know you best believe that you are impacted by the word, that the word is that navigation system in your life? Would your friends say that? Do they sense that the word is a part of your life? That's what I'm asking. And I think that's what James is asking. We're not cut and paste Christians. We're controlled. We're we're yielded to the power of the Bible in our lives. Number three, is your vision of God large enough to be the answer? I think I, yeah, I had that word answer highlighted for us. Is your vision of God large enough to be the answer to the question we cannot answer? reconciling God's sovereignty with man's free will. We ultimately, this end of heaven and maybe through all eternity, cannot and finally will not be able to put together how we are not robots, we are not puppets, we are will, um, willful people who, who are volitional, we make decisions, and yet at the same time God is completely sovereign over his perfect plan. God is blameless, he, he does not participate in our sins, but he allows for things to, to play out as part of his perfect will for his glory. Is God big enough in your mind, in the way he describes himself in scripture as sovereign, to be the answer for you to rest in him ultimately and say, God, you're sovereign and you are ruler even over this hard question? He needs to be. Number four, do you believe God has the right to rule over your circumstances, your life, your career, your health, your relationships, and your finances, etc.? even if you cannot fully grasp how his sovereignty works. Does God have all rights and privileges over your life, over your future? I hope so. Because we don't live for temporal goals. We're not just living to figure things out here in this life. We're living for the ultimate glory of God. And one day we'll see him face to face, and he will be sufficient as the answer to all of our issues in this life as we march into eternity together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are sovereign. Lord, this is humbling to approach these passages. These are difficult passages, but ones that need to guide our thinking and our wills. Lord, thank you for giving us our life, and thank you for, giving, for being a God whom we can always trust and run to. Thank you for caring for us individually and personally. 
God, I pray that we would yield to you. I pray that if anyone here does not yet know you, maybe someone here is resisting your will, is resisting your word, does not want to yield to you, and I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself this morning, that they would repent and humble themselves before you, trusting that you will exalt them at the proper time. We thank you for our church. We thank you for our ministry. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in grace this week. In Jesus' name, amen.